So if you have been following us, we uh, had a break last week, but we're jumping back into um, our discussion on what it means to be the church in the world. And when we began uh, this conversation, we started by identifying the primary way in which the Bible talks about us as believing people, uh, as a group, as the church. We are the church. That's what it means to be the called out ones, the ones who have been called out from the world to be a very special place where God manifests himself uh, in the most vivid ways. That's what the church is. But then we said in the next week, a couple weeks ago, that there's a realm in which Christians operate. And the Bible's favorite word for that is the kingdom of God. And what we said was is that the kingdom of God is a broader concept than the church. The church is much more specific when it talks about what it means for us to be the people of God as we gather together. Um, the kingdom is this broader concept of what it means as we go out into the world to try to be Christians in the places where we have been placed. And so it would be natural for you to ask yourself the question, so church and kingdom, uh, am I a member of the church or am I a citizen of the kingdom? Like, which is it there? And the answer is, of course, it's both. It's both. We are members of the church and the kingdom. But what I want to do today, and I'm going to go ahead and admit the fact that of all the times it's going to sort of challenge you a little bit, this week and next week, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. <laughs> um, because it's a little bit vague, but I've tried to put together as many illustrations to explain to you. It's not vague. It's a little bit um, it's esoteric. How about that? It's a little bit kind of heady for us to think about. But I think what will happen is, as I start to describe the various ways in which people have talked about what it means to be the church and what it means for us to go out into the world, it's going to start to sound familiar to you. And you're going to be like, wait a minute, that's how I grew up. Or you're going to be like, you know what, that's exactly the way my friend talks about Christianity in the world now. You know what, that reminds me of a conversation I had about politics with somebody recently. In other words, I think what you're going to see is, in American Christianity especially, the way people think about what it means to live out in the world um, is, is nuanced, but they fall into specific categories. Um, what's very interesting is, I think, uh, from a biblical point of view, and this is for those of you who really want to kind of get down in the, uh, the, the nitty-gritty of it all, is that if you're asking about the topics of church and kingdom, and you look at the New Testament for who talked about what and how, it tends to be that Jesus was far more talk, uh, talkative when it came to the idea of the kingdom, but only mentioned the church briefly. Okay, But when you get to the apostles and the epistles and the letters that they wrote, they talk a ton about the church and only reference the kingdom briefly. Now, hold that thought, because I think that's important for the way in which Jesus understood how it was to be that he wanted for his people to sort of work things out. So here we do. We have two people who are Christians and are trying to live in God's world, and they've got a question about what it means to be the church, the called out ones. But they also know that there's this realm called the kingdom. But what I want to ask the question of today is, is how do those two things fit together? And I want to deal with three approaches. 
three ways in which American Christians have typically thought about what it means to be a Christian in this world in which we live. This week, I want to suggest that these three ways are problematic. All three of them are going to have things that we can commend about them and things that we're going to be a little more uncomfortable about them. And then next week, I want to go with what I think are some better ideas to help us think a little bit better. It's not the total solution, but it's some better ways of talking and thinking about church and kingdom. And then we're going to go the next week into the more specific application of that through the rest of the term. Okay? So that's how we lay it out. Is that good for everybody? All right, let's start with the liberal approach. Church and kingdom you can begin with in the liberal approach by taking a little trip back in time and digging through the cobwebs of your high school history classes to the late 1800s. What was going on among sort of mainline Protestantism, I don't let that little phrase throw you off, we're just talking about the big denominational churches uh, in the late 1800s. Mainline Protestantism would have been uh, non-Catholics, who were living and operating in the late 1800s. There were a lot of movements that were going on during that time. A lot of theological movements that were going on during that time. And what had happened was, as travel and the Industrial Revolution had sort of taken place and was advancing, a lot of these denominational influences were sending their prospects for ministry, their seminary students, back over to Germany to be educated in German schools. Well, at that time, a lot of the sort of foundational orthodox questions surrounding Christianity had long since been abandoned in German seminaries. Okay? And so what was happening is all these mainline denominational pastors were being sent over to Germany to study for a while, and they were coming back and bringing some of those more liberalizing thoughts about Christianity to the table. And I want to deal with one major spirit that was kind of in the air for these early people. And that was the idea of progress. Now, be careful how critical you get of sort of these early liberalizing Christians, because this was just in the air during the Gilded Age. Remember the Gilded Age? It's what you studied in, studied in high school. All the people have a push, you know, sort of uh, acid flashbacks. I feel that pain. I took AP American U.S. History twice with my 18-year-old and 17-year-old in the last couple of years. Um, I did fantastic on the, uh, on the AP exam. I just want you all to know that. Felt very good about it. But the air that you breathed during the late 1800s was progress. You've got the Industrial Revolution sort of coming to its, um, uh, to its fulfillment. You then have everybody looking around and realizing we have all this potential. We can do mass transit. Uh, we can do um, mass production. We can sort of create these factory systems where people can advance and do more products. And you had all these problems with guys getting super, super wealthy uh, uh, in the midst of it. But the air was progress. And what happened was, was the church wanted that same thing. They wanted to sort of participate in the march of mankind to this sort of crazy optimistic time where it really did seem like all the problems of the past were really going to be taken care of by human innovation. That was in the water, y'all. It was everything that people were talking about. And so Christians wanted a number of things. They wanted, first of all, for their faith to be able to adapt to the pace of the world around them. They wanted, to be, they wanted their ideas and beliefs to sort of mean something in a world that almost seemed to them like it was too much for them to even believe. They wanted to hold on to their faith, but they also felt like they needed change. 
Secondly, they wanted to see God in a tangible way. They felt like there was too much emphasis in the early American Christianity on ideas. And they wanted to see how those ideas worked out. Science to these people was everything. They wanted to know whether their Bibles could fit in with all the advancements that were being made in science. Again, be careful how you condescend to those people because they, they sound a lot like us. And then finally, what they wanted to do is they wanted to make a connection between society getting better and what the Bible talked about when it talked about the kingdom of God. Okay? They wanted to see change. They were the ones, it was Christians who stood up and uh, protested the most about uh, child labor laws, which was a huge issue in the Gilded Age, as you'll remember. Uh, Robber barons, monopoly control, all these big social issues that were going on, Christians were the ones that were standing up and addressing it, and a lot of these mainline Protestants as they do. And so they began to adopt the language that began to reflect these ideas. And what you began to hear them talk about was what became to be known, at least now, as the social gospel. You'll still feel people talk about the social gospel. And what that basically means is, is using the Bible to address all of these social problems like poverty, like wealth disparity, that you had these really, really, really rich people that were getting more and more rich, and you had these really, really, really poor people that were getting worse and worse off. They had problems of government corruption. You got all the sort of scandals of government that were going on at the same time. And so people began to say, how can the Bible speak to us about reforming society. Does that make sense? And so therefore their idea of, of, um, of big Bible themes were cast in terms of social progress. In other words, now sin was mostly talked about not in terms of like a personal uh, uh, issue that you had between you and God, but sin was the way in which stuff had gotten complicated uh, out in the world. In other words, sin was the the negative social effects of poverty. That's where you saw sin in in its effect. Secondly, salvation, salvation was not an individual sort of praying and asking Jesus into his heart. But salvation was more like bringing an end to human suffering in the places where there was suffering. Right? And mission was basically defined as doing social justice. Going outside and having a mission to sort of fix the places where the world had fallen off. And what happened was, was Jesus' ethical teachings, especially in places like the Sermon on the Mount, began to get a lot of airtime among these preachers. In other words, look at what Jesus said about the nature of this kingdom. That's what was, that was what God was intending from the very beginning. So I have to tell you that, that uh, the, the notes and the information from this lesson uh, I, I've, I've uh, shamelessly stolen from my good friend Sean Lucas who spoke on this topic to all of us uh, campus ministers uh, at our national staff training in Denver about a month ago. Uh, And one of the great things about having an academic like Dr. Lucas sort of at your fingertips uh, and is also a friend is you get these great references to stuff that you would think, Les is so smart. Um, But I can, I just, you know, I know myself well enough to let you think that for a while. But Sean brought something out that I thought was just uh, brilliant. And what he said was, is he said, if you try to look at the liberal approach in terms of, of church and kingdom, you could sort of say it this way. In the liberal approach, the church kind of gets dissolved out into the kingdom. 
In other words, the church and the kingdom kind of get meshed together in such a way where you can't really tell the difference between the two. Because the distinctives of the church, the doctrine of the church, the real sort of life-changing power of a new heart that the church was supposed to be about, kind of ends up getting sort of misty, and you really can't tell the difference between a church service and a political rally. Some of you, again, some of you are being like, sounds like what I grew up with. Now you're starting to see where we're going, because this stuff is still with us today. And so, so Sean comes up with this fantastic illustration from Martin Luther King, since we're headed close to MLK's birthday. This is a fantastic quote from him about a certain theologian that he had uh, come across, uh, whose last name is Rauschenbusch. Rauschenbusch was one of these German uh, theologians who had written a very famous book called Christianity and the Social Crisis, which many people would look back and say is kind of the, the most crystallized version of the social gospel coming from the late 1800s. Okay? And MLK had read it. And listen to what he says. You're going to love the language because it's exactly what we're talking about. This is in one of his letters uh, 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 from the Birmingham jail. He says, I came early to Walter Rauschenbusch's Christianity and the Social Crisis which left an indelible imprint on my thinking by giving me a theological basis for the social concern which had already grown up in me as a result of my early experiences. In other words, he was saying that living as an African-American in the South, I began to read Rauschenbusch and be like, holy mackerel, there's actually theological basis for the stuff that's driving me crazy. Of course, listen to what he says, there were points at which I differed with Rauschenbusch I felt that he had fallen victim to the 19th century, quote, cult of inevitable progress, which led him to a superficial optimism concerning man's nature. Did you hear what he just said? He said, what Rauschenbusch failed to identify was, you can't be too hopeful <laughs> about what mankind's going to be able to accomplish. Because there's this whole total depravity thing that we got working in us. Where a man is crazy flawed and super sinful and, and every th- part of society is affected by it. And so MLK is basically saying, I had some problems with the fact that he was a little too optimistic about what human beings were able to do. Moreover, now listen to what he says. This is MLK. So this is not me making this up. He came perilously close to identifying the kingdom of God with a particular social and economic system. A tendency which should never befall the church. Boom. If you're looking for your one-sentence definition of how church and kingdom connect to each other in the liberal approach, there it is. The liberal approach identifies the church way too closely with a political or economic system. There's, there's almost a union of the two. I've sat in sort of churches that are like this in my lifetime. And it really is interesting how politicized those particular pulpits can be. But now, notice he qualifies. He says, but in spite of these shortcomings, Rauschenbusch had done a great service for the Christian church by insisting that the gospel deals with the whole man, not only his soul, but his body, not only his spiritual well-being, but his material well-being. So my argument, actually Sean's argument, is that MLK is remarkably balanced in that statement and shows what are sort of the good sides and the bad sides of the liberal approach. Let's look at it through this graphic. What you have... In, in our discussion is an attempt for the Christian church, the idea of the, of the people of God, to impact the, the illness in the world, the kingdom of Satan, that we want to attack at every level, wherever, you know, where we sing in joy to the world, far as the curse is found, 
Far as the curse is found, far as, the longest as in the world. How do we attack that? And we've got church and kingdom. But what happens in the liberal church is the church becomes this misty sort of force that kind of instructs people on how to work a particular a political agenda. The church dissolves out into the kingdom. Okay? Now, what are the good and the bad? Well, on the one hand, the good part of it is, is that societal ills were called out by Christians. That wasn't all bad. The important topic of justice in the world around them was in their air, and people wanted to talk about it. Now, why is that important? Because the Bible talks about justice. A lot. (laughs) The Bible knows what happens in the heart of man when sin takes over, is man begins to be cruel to other men. And injustice reigns. And these people actually are to be commended for having done that. However... On the bad side, they were too ready to identify social progress with spiritual growth. Did you catch that? They were too ready to identify social progress with spiritual growth, which is not always the case. Only the Bible can be the judge over a society, not the other way around. And what ended up happening eventually, as you know in the early 1900s, was Christian truth was totally diluted. You had Christians standing up and being like, I don't really know whether Jesus was a real person, but what does it really matter? Doesn't really matter whether Jesus was a real person because what we need is his life force, his, his moral teachings, you know, the, the, the moral vision that he had. You know, I don't know whether Jesus was born of a virgin. As a matter of fact, all that stuff about miracles in the Bible, we now know because we're scientific and we're modern, they're like, miracles don't happen like that. So we're going to take that part out, just kind of ignore it as like, these were early primitive people who, you know, sort of believed in the gods and that, you know, the gods could come and walk on water. And so they thought Jesus could walk on water, but that didn't really happen. So throwing out all kinds of chunks of the New Testament, right? Which we would look at and say, no, we've got to defend that particular approach. All right, so that's the, that's the liberal approach. Let's go on to number two here. Uh, and I hope that what I'm going to ask you at the end is, is what did you grow up with? Let's talk about the conservative approach. And now, I'm going to sort of finish with two sort of brands of conservatism. But for right now, I kind of want to talk about us a little bit. I want to talk about sort of us Presbyterians, which I know is terrible English, but I want to talk about this on the other hand. On the other side, there were people who actually were not going the way of the sort of liberal mainline Protestantism. There were a lot of individuals during this time who actually were trying to hang on to their commitment to the truth. And they were trying to defend it. And I would make an argument that they were doing so quite ably. Uh, men like B.B. Warfield, some of the great Southern uh, uh, Presbyterians were holding on to it quite ably and dealing with some of these uh, challenges to Scripture. But on the other hand, they were facing a massive social problem that we call the Civil War. Don't you think they would all be appreciative of me referring to the Civil War as a massive social problem? Um, yes, this was a big deal. And so you had a lot of conservatives that were caught up in the winds of something that early on they probably didn't think could really happen. And that was a division in the actual country that they had all formed. All that revolutionary spirit to begin with was done for. And the westward expansion had happened. America is gulping up land and influence left and right. And suddenly the economic interests that surrounded the question of slavery began to come to the forefront. And everybody's picking sides. And of course, as you know, a lot of those sides were determined by where you lived because it depended also very much on the kind of economic subsistence that you were used to gaining. 
And therefore, if your economy was kind of based on slavery, you got a little defensive when people started talking about getting rid of it because it meant your livelihood was going out the door. And on the other hand, if you were in a place where it was more industrial in that particular way, then you were, um, you were influenced by that uh, instead. But what happened was as people began to take sides, they began to look to the church for some guidance. They looked to the church for some guidance of how this comes across and what to do. And the answer that came from the Southern Presbyterians and the solution there was simply this, that the church had no business speaking to the political world or the economic world or any, quite frankly, to any public institution. It was not her business. You have this individual over here who I've got a nice, that's a dashing young painting of James Henley Thornwell, the great fiery Presbyterian preacher from First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. You can actually go and still see his burial place today. Uh, Thornwell was a huge figure and was quoted as saying this. You can put this together in one sentence. The church is a spiritual body whose jurisdiction, in other words, uh, sphere of influence, extends only to the religious faith and the moral conduct of her members. She cannot legislate, legislate in the public sphere, where Christ has not legislated, nor made terms of membership which he has not made. That's James Henley Thornwell. The idea was simply that the church is to stay in the realm of the spiritual And the world can come together and do things in the way in which it can only do it itself. And one of the places where these people sort of quoted to sort of get this idea across was from our own Westminster Confession of Faith. Some of you have been like, "Uh, you're talking like I should know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is. Les, what is that? Well, for those of you that are sort of superficially involved in this denomination we call the Presbyterian Church in America, there is a document that we have that helps to sort of lay out what it is that we believe. Came out of sort of the um, uh, civil wars of the English uh, church back in the 1500s, 1600s or so, and is a document of the summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. It's a wonderful document. You ought to read it. I warmly commend it to you. But if you go to chapter 31, verse 4, chapter 4, uh, chapter 31, section 4, you have this little nugget coming from the Westminster Confession. Synods and councils... It's a synod and council. Well, that's church, church authority places. Are to handle and conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. That means church type stuff. In other words, the people in the church only need to sort of make declarations about church stuff. Stay with the church. And are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth. Unless, by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. I know you, when was the last time somebody in a Sunday school class used the word thereunto? Um, But what are they basically saying? What they're simply saying is, and for Southerners, this was the foundation of the doctrine of the separation of church and state. That church and state function in two very separate spheres. Things which I would argue have been sort of deified in our own uh, context. Church and state. But there's one small little problem with relying on the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, section 4, as the basis of your approach to society. And that is this. When those guys were writing this, 
the framers of the Westminster Confession, the people who penned it, they were actually not dealing with a world where they were trying to create a separation between church and state. They actually were being called upon to talk about the role of the church in a state church. Remember, the Church of England was a state-run church. So what they can't mean, what we know they didn't mean, was that the sort of um, uh, separation of church and state, this was not on their mind. They were simply trying to give the church boundaries, lest it sort of took over things that it ought not take over as a state church. And so it's a little bit of a, it's a hard way to sort of create a a one-to-one relationship in that regard. But here's what happened. When the separation of church and state began to kind of get into the the, the sort of a religious water of its time, the fundamentalists of the church took it over and basically created a place where all of a sudden church and state were wildly separated, where the separation wasn't between church and state, but it was between church and life. Um, In other words, what happens in this view is that the church kind of absorbs the kingdom all into itself. And what you have is you have a, uh, well, there's the synods and councils thing. Most of you wanted to see the word thereunto in, in it written out, so I wanted to oblige you with that. Let's look at it this way. What happens in this particular approach is, is that the kingdom ends up getting sucked down into just the church so that the only things that are spiritual in life are the things that are done in the church. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which you know is a, is a fairly conservative uh, religious environment, and I began to realize that there were systems, religious systems there, that had hospitals where you could give birth to your child in. Uh, they then had uh, Christian schools that were housed underneath the authority of that local church, and then there were even Christian colleges that you could attend that the church also had influence under, and then they had actual uh, uh, um, strip malls where Christians could go and open up businesses that were intended to run their businesses Christianly. They they even had a a yellow pages that was the Christian yellow pages. So you could make sure that you only dealt with Christians. There's a lot of jokes you could make off of that, but I'm not going to do it. Then they even had a retirement community on the very property of the church. And then, of course, they usually oversaw a cemetery. And suddenly you begin to realize that in this particular view, you can literally be born, raised, work, and die and never actually leave the grounds of the church. Now, look, that's a, that might be a little bit of an advanced version for you. Sort of a, Some of you are saying that would be wonderful. Would it, though? <laughs> because what happens to our outreach of the world? Eventually, what happens is the church never speaks to the kingdom of Satan. It never addresses the social problems that are out there. Why? Because we're all involved in our own stuff. Right? And I'll say this. One of the things that's very difficult is, um, let's do the good and the bad of this particular conservative approach. The good is, is they provided a basis for the church to stay within its lanes. I think there is something fundamentally true about saying that the church does have definable lanes when it comes to Scripture and that she ought to be very careful about the authority that she thinks she has when she speaks to things in the civil sphere. Be really careful about quoting the Bible on those kind of things. It also questioned the expertise of the church. In other words, 
The, the, the conservative approach looked at and been like, ask the church, what do I know? What do I think I know about economic policy? Now, granted, I think I might know some generalized principles that ought to sort of guide legislators as they legislate, but when it comes to how that actually gets enacted, I probably need to allow some freedom there. I think that was a good thing. The bad on this sense, though, especially when it concerns, pardon me, the Southern Presbyterians, is they were conveniently selective about the social issues that they decided were beyond the realm of the church to speak to. Uh, Evidence, let's do the last 50 years of our own history of the PCA. When the PCA started in the 1960s, uh, and and specifically in the early 1970s, there were a lot of issues for which we were greatly exercised over. Abortion. And, and, and violently opposed to uh, that as a social problem. But boy, were we awfully quiet when it came to issues of the civil rights movement. Didn't have much to say on that one now, did we? We failed on that. In other words, what happened was, is we were selective about the stuff that we thought the Bible was specific about and was not. Huge blind spots tend to come up when all of a sudden the separation of church and state lives in your mind as a totalizing idea. Or... We might even say this. Well, how about this? Have you ever been uncomfortable with church, the church and state separation? Where, where you come along and you say, like, as a Christian, I cannot do X, Y, and Z. And someone looks and goes, look, you need to keep your church to yourself. Church and state separation, church and state separation. And you thought to yourself, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, you're asking me to operate as my person. And like, my church is not just this little appendage to my life. It's like who I am. Have you ever felt sort of uncomfortable with that? Look, the temptation for this approach while preserving church-state separation can end up devolving into church-life separation. And even Christians themselves don't look at it as being all that helpful. The conservative approach. It's got good and bad to it, right? All right, let's go to the third one here. I'm going to finish up and have some questions. Oh, I get to introduce you to an old dead guy. I love, you've already had James Henley Thornwell this morning, so now you get to get another one uh, where it just gets more and more fun for us. Um, so during all this time, especially during the Gilded Age, late uh, 1800s or so, uh, there was a university professor uh, and president who started writing and lecturing uh, by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He was at that time uh, the, 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 the prime minister of the Netherlands. So great Dutch theologian. And Kuyper came along and was listening to all the liberal stuff Uh, that was coming up out of uh, Germany at that time. And he was like, you know, I don't like any of those. And not only that, he was very well versed in some of the conservative approach that was coming from the American uh, American side of the uh, the Atlantic. And so what they basically said was, is he said, you know, there's kernels of truth in all of these particular things. And I'm going to call his the transformation approach. He understood church and kingdom uh, as uh, with a number of interesting insights. First of all, what he said was, he said, life tends to lay out in what I'm going to call spheres. These are separate aspects of society. If you drew a bunch of circles on a board, if I had a marking board, I'd draw a bunch of circles on there. Where it basically said that these are the places where human, human beings operate. You've, you've got the world of your economics, your budgetary concerns. You've got the world of the arts, and beauty. You, you've got the world of politics over here, and then there's this whole world of the family and your marriage and things like that. But God and Jesus is Lord over all of these spheres, but it's wise for these spheres to be careful how they try to overlap. 
Kuiper basically came along and said, people need to stay in their lanes. But realizing all the while that Jesus is Lord over them all. Now, my, my suspicion is you got a little wind of this when you first came to Christ Presbyterian but didn't realize it. Because, in, and, and frankly, if we're as close to something in the PCA, we're probably more close to the transformation approach than any other approach, popularly speaking. And so you probably got wind of the fact that in our circles, if you came along and said that you were an accountant, there was no condescension to your... <laughs> To whatever floats your boat, uh, in, 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 my father was an accountant. I'm not making fun of accountants. God forbid. I cannot, it's inconceivable how he enjoyed his life, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> you look at my life in the same way. Let's be honest. But we never looked at you and said, well, we're so glad that you're an accountant. But there are other people who have gone into full-time Christian service. Did, you ever, did anybody grow up with that phrase? Is it just me? I, there was an altar call that I went to multiple times where whether you felt like God was calling you into full-time Christian service. Isn't that a horrible phrase? Is there anybody that signs up for part-time Christian service? I do part-time Christian service. I'm only a Christian half the time. Um, the other time, I do what I want. Um, in other words, there's these idea that there's vocations that are secular, like politics and, 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 and teachers and, and accountants are getting picked on. Lawyers, we'll pick on the lawyers. Uh, lawyers, you know, have, no, that can't be a godly activity, can it? Lawyers. <laughs> but then over here, there's the spiritual activity. There's, there's coming to uh, church every time it's open. Uh, there's Bible study. There's reading your Bible. Those are the spiritual things in life. And basically, maturity as a Christian is defined by filling up your life with more of these activities than it is these activities over here. Well, Abraham Kuyper was a guy that says, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord over every area of life. His famous phrase goes like this. There is no place in the world where Jesus has not planted his flag and said, mine. Whether you're an accountant, whether you are a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whatever else. Okay? He also gave us this wonderful concept called common grace. Common grace was the grace that God dispensed to all kinds of people um, without necessarily saving their souls. Okay, bear with me for a second. Special grace, if you will, is that grace that God's Holy Spirit uses to sort of take out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and make you a Christian because the Holy Spirit is in you. But... Kuiper said, there's a generalizing grace that is the source of the Holy Spirit where God gives his wonderful gifts to people who don't necessarily care a thing about him. Um, have you ever listened to a piece of music where you were like, I can't stop listening to that song. That song is fantastic. I'm listening to it over and over. I'm one of those over and over again people. I wear a song out. I get in my car, just put it on repeat. It's the most wonderful thing ever created. Just keep going with that song because I just can't believe somebody put that together. And then all of a sudden you read like in a magazine article or something online, BuzzFeed's got some exposure on somebody, and you're like, oh my word, they're a slug. They're a complete slug. I, that just totally ruins that song for me. Well, Kuiper came along and said, why would that ruin that song for you? Because God can grant his gifts of common grace of people with wisdom, insight, creativity, given even to the people who don't care about him. So that I can celebrate the gift without buying into the worldview of the one who made the gift. Why? Common grace. Whoa, it's a big deal. A lot of people got really interested in Christianity at this point. However, 
even though Kuiper talked a whole lot about this common grace that we can enjoy everywhere, he also talked about the fact that if you really get into the Christian worldview, it is totally different from what's out there in the world. Why? Because we begin with the knowledge of God. We begin with the knowledge of God. It sort of centers everything that we do. And if you start from a a position of there being no God, the way the secularists do, you're going to end up with ideas that in their ultimate foundation are wrong. So Kuiper was a huge proponent of creating Christian schools. If there is a father, grandfather, great-great-grandfather of the Christian schooling, homeschooling movement, Kuiper would be one of their patron saints. Okay? It's where Christians begin to really get this idea of if we're really going to do education well, we've got to understand this absolute difference between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. So basically, if you were to put up in one word the relationship of church to kingdom in this view, it sort of goes by this. I'm going to have to give you another little big word here, but it was, it's a mourning for that, apparently. In this view, the church is the impetus for the kingdom. Now, what's the word impetus mean? Well, it just means it's the spark plug. It's the thing that electrifies the kingdom. It's the thing that sort of most motivates it. And so we can look at our new, our, a new drawing here. Um, in other words, you've got the church who has learned to do church stuff. And I know you're asking yourself the question, could you go back again to what the church stuff is? Hold that thought, okay? And then there's the kingdom of God in all of its spheres, the sphere of education and politics, economics, and the arts. And what happens is the church is intended to be, as it were, a porous influence on the kingdom of God deciding, in other words, sort of speaking the full range of what God has said over the world. A preacher is to stand up and elucidate what the Bible says about every area of life, while at the same time withdrawing from areas that he does not have expertise over. Does that make sense? So there's almost a sense of extending and withdrawing, depending on what? The Bible. This is why it's really important to be a Bible-based church because you cannot speak where she has not spoken and then influencing them. So there's a withdrawal and a movement aspect as these people go out into every area of life and make their own decisions and make their own decisions uh, about how they end up attacking those things. And what it might turn out to be is that two people might disagree on the best economic approach for people to take at one time. And someone who's being a real transformationalist will we'll be charitable for that moment and be like, well, you know, people are going to take different tax to this problem. Are they not appealing to the same God? Well, that brings us to the good and the bad of this sort of transformationalist approach. What is the good? Well, the first thing is, is every area of life is confronted by the truth of the gospel. Far as the curse is found. That's what we're talking about. In other words, there's a joy that I think initially takes over. Certainly the college students I've dealt with for 20 four years now, who can suddenly say, I have an interest in, um, in the arts, and I've not been able to see where my Christianity fits in with my arts. Well, the transformationalist comes along and goes, boy, howdy, we got lots to say about the arts. Let's think about what it means to be a Christian artist. And no, it doesn't mean that you draw crosses all the time, Okay. <laughs> It's, it's someone looks and goes, I've got an interest in politics. What does the Bible have to say? Well, it has all kinds of sort of topics for us. It's got lots of sort of approaches for us to look at. 
God can be just as much Lord over that area of life. And it excites and, and, and genuinely can sort of uh, um, get people excited about their lives. All of life under the Lord of all. You know what this means? It means that every human vocation, every legitimate human vocation has dignity. Has dignity. And what it can do is it can sort of revive that Monday morning blues that oftentimes crawls over you where you're like, man, not this again. What am I possibly doing? And what the Bible wants to help you do and what the transformationalist wants to help you do is to help you begin to look at those things and say, well, I don't know, what area of the world am I making better? Hold that thought. A lot more on that next week. And then the thing that it does is it preserves the distinction between church and kingdom. The two need to be distinguished. But then there are some problems. And honestly, I think in many ways we can help even diagnose our own denomination at this point. Because Kyperians, first of all, two big problems with this sort of uh, struggle. On the one hand, the transformationalist tends to be a little heady in their approach. You know what I mean by heady? They like to talk about ideas. You'll hear them talk about a worldview. What is your, what is your worldview? And you're like, I didn't know I had a worldview, but I think I do. And they want to talk about that. And of course, I don't want to argue that it's less than talking about what goes on in your head. It's true. What does Romans 12 say? That we are to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. So of course there's, there's mental, thoughtful work to do about how I'm thinking. But the transformationalist tends to be a little overly so. And where sometimes they fail to kind of get into the things that they really need to get into. Life doesn't really, sometimes it doesn't connect. We're all spending our time sort of pontificating. Which is really funny because you're being like, oh, you mean like what you've been doing for the last 45 minutes, Liz? Yes, yes, I'm owning that. So that's the first thing. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week. So come back next week to talk about that one. But here's the last one that I think is the complicated part. What happened to the sort of children of Abraham Kuyper? Because they had this common grace thing over here. And then they had this antithesis, you know, complete difference over here. For the last, I don't know, 120 years that we've been living under that influence, those two have not been great friends. They haven't necessarily worked well together. And so arguably, when people have tried to sort of be sort of pure transformationalist, they have struggled holding together. Like, you know, the Presbyterian reputation, when in doubt, divide. <laughs> that sort of tends to be the idea that when it comes to it, we'll just split the church. You know, I don't know, whatever you want to do, just go. Because what happens is when these people start to get out here and they disagree on education, they're unable to let go of their interpretation because they're so convinced that it's exactly what the Bible says. And so there's an argument to be made that there is an inherent volatility. It's like nitroglycerin. You know, Foghorn Leghorn walks up to the little, the little small chicken. It's like, what you got there, boy? Looks like soda pop, you know, and starts shaking it. <laughs> it blows up. Anyway, Foghorn Leghorn. I, I felt like there was a need to sort of bring the conversation down. And I was watching a cartoon last night with Foghorn Leghorn. Therein lies the whole thing. Don't you remember when he grabs the nitroglycerin and he shakes it up? Okay, never mind. <laughs> Foghorn Leghorn Kids was a cartoon back in the old days. He was a big chicken. It was very funny. Um, <laughs> But the problem comes is, 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 is this transformational approach was volatile. It blew up all the time. And frankly, it continues to blow up. 
Because we don't know how to hold the things that we ought to hold with firmness while at the same time letting go in terms of humility the things that we disagree about. Okay? All right, so here's my question in our last seven minutes of our class here. Sound familiar to you? Which one did you grow up in? Did you grow up in the liberal approach? Did you grow up with the conservative approach? Separation of church and state? Or did you grow up with the transformationalist approach? (laughs) And maybe don't have any more friends. That's the end of my lesson, by the way. I usually have a nice little illustration at the end, but I didn't have one at this time. Ooh, put the graphic back up. So that's our approach. That's, that's sort of the way in which these things have sort of fallen out. Any thoughts or questions about this? I know that was a lot of heady stuff, a lot of historical names, and you're all going back to Wikipedia and Gilded Age and whatnot, uh, but that's okay. It's good to, good to be refreshed of that sort of stuff. Any thoughts on how you grew up? Yes, yes. Micah. <laughs> Put your hand up. I have noticed sought are different, but the methodologies are similar. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, when I grew up, the only sort of political discussion we were having was about the moral majority. Remember, remember Falwell's big statement to, uh, to the, in the late 80s and 90s that basically saying, look, out there, there is a Christian body of people that eventually we're going to get ourselves elected. And once those Christians sort of get elected, everything's going to be better. And we're going to fix it once we get our man in the White House, which, again, is still sort of there. I find that a very interesting admixture of one of some of these approaches. Yes, there's echoes in that of the liberal approach, where it's like, if we could just get our system in place, everything's going to be better. But in many ways, it's also got echoes of the conservative approach, does it not? Where we're trying to say... In other words, sometimes the instinct is, if we could just make the whole world the church, then we'd be okay. Now, you realize that's where the language gets very interesting, where you say, now, what do you mean by the church? Well, if you go back to medieval times, you've got probably the best example of that actually happening. Because the church and the state were the same, Right? During the medieval period, the Roman church sort of had swallowed up every single area of life and had brought it under all of its own sort of roof there. And was that better? I think there are great arguments to say that a lot of creativity, a lot of human ingenuity was squashed. And one of the people to blame was the instinct to make the church be the place where anything good in the world had to ultimately be funneled. And what Kuiper was saying in the transformationalist approach, and you can see I'm probably a transformationalist a little bit more in my heart, even though I recognize its problems. The transformationalists are saying there really do need to be times where the church stays within the things that she knows she does well and stay out of some of those things, which is one of the great critiques a lot of people had of the moral majority movement. But look, but look, don't think that the, that the PCA folks like ourselves are immune to that. Because we, had a, we, had a, we sort of had a drunken uncle for a while that really was convinced that if we just went you know, back to the Old Testament and found the way in which politics was done when God really was the, 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 the president of the nation, okay, the theocratic society of nation Israel, if we could go back to those principles, things will be awesome. The doctrine of Christian reconstruction or theonomy, God's law. In other words, we've got all these echoes of great laws in the Old Testament, um, we'll just reapply those. <laughs> now, that was, and I'll be honest, those guys knew their Bibles. 
um, this drunken uncle of ours. Uh, they come out of the closet every now and then, and you'd be kind of freaked out by them when they would start talking. Split tons of churches because it was so inherently volatile. They could not agree. So yeah, it comes out in versions almost everywhere where people start to get excited and they get sort of energized over the fact that there's social ills around us. How are we going to fix and cure this? And they end up sort of sliding off. Micah, that's exactly one of the uh, applications I want you to notice. Once you begin to look at the question you will, uh, of the, in the terms in which we're looking at, you will not watch the news in the same, I promise you. Because you'll begin to hear echoes of how Christians have dealt with this problem, uh, even in our own time. It's a huge issue. And so hopefully next week we can come up with some, some even more constructive things. So there's a lot of great thinkers uh, that are doing some work in this area that I think are uh, sort of helping us in whatever the next generation looks like for at least American Christians. Right, that may have been completely entirely too heady. If you were bored by church this week, just come back next week. So it's going to be awesome next week. Let me pray for us before we close. Lord Jesus, um, if, if, uh, if these people are anything like me, my head tends to swim uh, whenever we get into these kind of conversations because we just want to know. We want to know what you want us to do. Um, we got to go to work tomorrow. And, and, and we, 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 we oftentimes don't have clarity on how you would have us to act, but we want to please you. We want you to smile on what we do. Um, could you help us with wisdom? Like you did say, Lord Jesus, that if um, we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, we need your Spirit uh, to give us wisdom, to guide us, to direct us, to help us to know uh, what it means for us to be Christians in this world that seems to have gone crazy around us. Uh, Would you help us in that endeavor? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.